Well, this morning we return to the story of the resurrection as recorded by the apostle whom Jesus loved. If you'll turn in John chapter 20 this morning, you'll notice in John chapter 20 that there are four different scenes that John records for us, uh, four distinct scenes that John records for us uh, about the resurrection, showing the empty tomb, the encounter, and the first encounters with the risen Christ. Last week we looked at the first several verses of this, verses uh, 1 through 10, where uh, first Mary and other gospel writers remind us that there are, uh, uh, Mary went to the tomb with several other women, uh, and there they saw that the tomb was empty, the stone had been rolled away, and so Mary ran, got uh, the apostles, and John and Peter ran to the tomb, uh, and there they saw, uh, and they began to understand, and finally John says they believed. Before this, they didn't understand that Jesus needed to die and rise from the grave. They didn't understand what he was talking about, and they had no idea of the necessity for that. And then at the end of that portion, in verse 8, we read that the other disciple who had reached the first tomb, uh, he saw and he believed. Uh, and then in verse 10, the disciples then went back to their homes. We pick up in verse 11 this morning. We see the first appearances of Jesus as we look at verses 11 through 18 of John chapter 20. So now hear the word of God. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will, I, I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy God. We thank you for these accounts of those who were there to testify not only of your death and your teaching, but of the resurrection and confirmation. We pray now that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive the truth as you have recorded it through your servant, that you would not only inform us of the events, but you would form us by the power of that resurrection as we have come today. Shape us as a people until all have reached full maturity in Christ, that we all are like Christ, and Christ is seen in us and amongst us. Lord, this is our prayer. We offer it rooted in your promise, and so therefore we pray with confidence. In the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. 
There's one thing I can say with certainty about every one of us that is here in this room. Whether you are young or old, strong or weak, rich or poor, there is one thing that is true for all of us, and that is that we will all experience death in our lives. It may be the death of dreams and of hopes. It may be the depth, death of whatever it is that brings security. It may be the death of relationships. All of those feel like death when they happen in, in a very real way. And it may be that you experience death of someone that you love in a real sense. And most of us will face and experience even our own death. Some of you are in the midst of that even now. You still bear the, the scars of past deaths. Others are wearing the weight of death that is facing you. But we all face it. We will all experience it. It's kind of a bummer way to open a message, but it is true. And because it is true, it should matter to every one of us whether this story of Jesus' resurrection is myth or truth. Whether it is myth that was a story concocted to bring comfort to a people of some more primitive age. Or whether it is truth told to us as it was by witnesses who were willing to give their very lives suffering rejection, persecution, and even death. It's not insignificant that those who told us the story, not one of them ever recanted at any point in their lives. Not one of them said, let's dial it down a little bit. We might have gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves. We, we might have embellished on some of these facts. Every one of them took the story to their graves and many of them experienced premature graves because they were seized, they were persecuted, they were tortured, they were killed, and not one of them ever suggested there was anything other than the truth. They had seen this guy, Jesus. They'd lived with him. They saw him alive, they saw him put on a cross, they saw him die, and then a few days later they saw him alive again. And it wasn't even just kind of a passing potential mistaken identity. Somebody looks like somebody. Somebody reminds me of somebody that I know. They spent time with him over the next 40 days. He ate with them. He talked with them. He instructed them. They understood more. Over 40 days of spending time with somebody, you get to know them. And if it wasn't the guy that you knew before, you'd have probably figured that out. So they testified to this. This is the way that it was. So therefore, they declare that it's truth. But if this is truth, if it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, that history had come to its apex and to its access, in other words, everything that had been testified up to that point, now history has lived in light of a resurrection, not of a mere promise. But if it is true that Jesus has risen from the dead, then a second question we need to ask, the first is, is it true? The second question that we need to be asking ourselves is, how can his triumph over death become my triumph? 
How can his victory empower my life in a way that will enable me to live the way I ought to live? I believe that in these passages, even in these verses that we're looking at this morning, God has given us some simple and yet profound principles that will enable us to be rooted in the power of the resurrection and that the reality of the resurrection can empower our lives whether the time is filled with joy or whether we are conscious of facing some kind of death. The first thing that I think that we need to see because it's glaring throughout this passage is this, is that Jesus loves broken people. I talked about that last week, so I won't go into, into a great detail, but we, we can't ignore it because it's staring us in the face in this particular passage. It's, it's shown in the first moments of not only of the resurrection, but of, of Jesus presenting himself, his first appearance of the resurrection. It's a confirmation illustrated uh, before us of what Jesus himself had said. But I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. I've come for people who are messed up. I love those who are messed up. That's who Jesus deals with. And that itself is good news for many of us who are here. But for others of us who are here, it may not be quite as good news because you've worked very hard and you've got your life together. You've got your act together. You know, God says do something. You are diligent and try to do it. God says this is what you're supposed to think and you conform your thinking to what God says and you've spent a lifetime trying to be obedient, trying to be good, and giving praise to God. And that is commendable. I, I in no way want to minimize that. But I also know that for those who have disciplined themselves and have lived that life for a long time, it's difficult to see yourself as a broken person. And so when we hear news like Jesus loves broken, messed up people, and you don't see yourself as one, that might not be good news to you. So let me speak to those of you who fall into that category. I've got good news for you. You're not as good as you think. Because Paul says to us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So those of you who are good, you're as messed up as we are. Now we can start back again because Jesus loves broken, messed up people. And it's evident in this text by the very fact that he reveals himself first and foremost to Mary Magdalene. If we look at this text, it's really kind of interesting, especially if you consider the first few verses, because Jesus had already risen. He was already gone from this grave. Now the women came, and Mary went and got the other disciples. The two pillar apostles, Peter and John, they run, they show up, they see, they begin to understand. They believe, is what John says in, in, in verse 8. Why doesn't Jesus reveal himself to them first? I mean, they're the ones that are going to go take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why doesn't he reveal himself to them? I don't know. I can only speculate, but I think it's consistent with the principles that we see taught throughout the scriptures. Is that despite the fact that we tend to poke at all of the disciples and you know show their flaws and their weakness, and they were not like great, powerful people, they were not the social elite, most of them were pretty good guys. They're people you would want living next door. Most of them grew up going to church or synagogue, had some familiarity with the word. That's why several of them were apostles or followers of John the Baptist. They weren't seeking spiritual things. They were seeking to honor God. They wanted to know what God had for them. 
And so their lives were committed in that way. And they lived their lives, more or less, probably a lot like most of us. Obedience, failure, obedience, failure. But overall, they're the kind of people that you would like. Mary's another story entirely. Now, from a personal standpoint, she may have been a wonderful, wonderful, endearing person, but she was scarred and marred from her own past. We don't know a whole lot about Mary. We certainly don't know as much as we think we do. There's different passages in the scripture that people put together and assume that they all refer to Mary, and they might, but they're not clear that they're speaking about this same Mary. So when movies are made, they, they can't make a movie and say, well, we don't know, and just leave a blank screen. They kind of put all these things together. And so we get this idea that we know more than we really do about Mary. But we only know about Mary is this. One is that she was from the town of Magdala, which was a small resort town on the Sea of Galilee. It was a popular resort town. While it wasn't high in population, people flocked to it. Think, think kind of like Myrtle Beach in the Middle East. But think Myrtle Beach in the Middle East when it's always spring break. Because being from Magdala was not a place that respectable people wanted to be from. My apologies for those of you who vacation in Myrtle Beach. The analogy has shifted. But anyway, that's, um, I think it would be safer to say it this way is what happens in Magdala stays in Magdala. Then we get the better idea of what kind of a town that she had come from. And pretty much the only other thing we know about her background is that she was possessed of seven demons when Jesus first encountered her. He delivered her from that and she was set free. But her background, she was scarred, she was marred, she had a reputation. Tradition tells us that she had been a prostitute in Magdala, and we don't know that. It's very possible. And the fact that she had seven demons would not surprise me if her background had been so horrendous, involved in sexual trafficking, that would open her up to that kind of spiritual warfare. But as a whole, we don't know a lot about her other than she has a past that no one would envy. She had a reputation that no one respected. And she loved Jesus. Having been delivered by Jesus, she enters into the inner circle with all of the disciples. She seems to have a special bond with Jesus and the family, almost like a, a sister to Jesus. She is there in the inner circle. She is there with, with Jesus' mother at his crucifixion. She's there with the family at other times. And so she has been embraced here. And she loves Jesus as evident by the fact that she is the first one at the tomb before sunlight. And she therefore is also one, the first one, not as a direct consequence, but Jesus has chosen her to be the first to see him when he is resurrected. And what we don't know is what her present condition is, what her present role. We know that she's saddened. She's there weeping. It's, it's evident. It's obvious. We would all understand that. Someone she loves has not just died, but has been charged, capital punishment in front of everybody, brutally and gruesomely, she watched him die. That would shake anybody up for a while, so no doubt she's still feeling and reeling from that. But here she's at the tomb, what we don't know, what we're not told is what her present brokenness is. She's been set free from her past. She's no longer possessed by demons. God, I think, is providentially silent about that. I mean, maybe she's still dealing with guilt from her past. Maybe she's still dealing with people not really wanting to 
talk to her when she shows up at church. Because, you know, look where she's come from. They say she's okay, but still. All right, well, we'll let her come. But she's not keeping nursery. We don't know the brokenness that she had. We know she had brokenness because we all have brokenness. But Jesus comes and he appeals to her. Appeal, appears to her. And in him appearing to her, we are able to identify with her because we don't know what her condition, her specific brokenness is. See, if we knew what it specifically was, it'd be easy for us to think, well, Jesus loves this kind of messed up, broken people, but maybe not this kind. The fact that the scripture is relatively silent about her and her particular brokennesses at this point means that when we see that Jesus reveals himself to her, approaches her, clearly demonstrating a love and an affection for her, we can put ourselves in her place. Whatever my brokenness is, I can assume that might be Mary's. Whatever your brokenness is, you can assume that might be what Mary was wrestling with too. Because we're not told any category of brokenness. We are just told that Jesus loves broken people. And it's almost as if we see time and time in the scriptures that the more recognition of brokenness, then the greater the appreciation for the grace and love that God gives to us. I think that may be why the Apostle Paul entrusted his protege, Timothy, with the words that we use this morning for the words of grace. He was instructing him, here's a trustworthy saying. In other words, embrace this for yourself and then teach those in your church. This is the way you ought to speak to yourself and remind yourself of this. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul had made it a practice to embrace and remind himself not just count your blessings one by one, name them and see what God has done, but remind himself of his own brokenness. And it must have been a big theme for Paul because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he writes this. Keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, so that Paul didn't become arrogant thinking he was something special because God had given him, you know, well, the book of Romans, uh, for one thing, and, you know, top that. Um, and then gave him more space in the New Testament than anybody else. Um, so to keep him from getting arrogant, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should be taken from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now Paul responds to what the Lord says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul is putting into words what we are seeing lived out on this page. As Jesus is revealing himself resurrected to a very broken person that we can identify with. But it reminds us that we need to remember our brokenness, that we are broken. 
and maybe do what Paul says and learn to even boast about our, boast, our brokennesses and weaknesses, not merely to keep us from becoming arrogant and conceited, but to prepare our hearts for the reality that Jesus loves broken people. And when we recognize our brokenness, then it means more to us to hear that truth. And so we need to remember that Jesus loves broken people, as evidenced here in this passage. The second thing that we need to do if we are going to root ourselves in the power of the resurrection is to realize that Jesus meets us wherever we are, and then he leads us from there. And we see that lived out in the discussion that Mary has first with the angels and then with Jesus. First, we, we see in the passage that Mary, she stays. And, and John really wants us, kind of backing up a little bit, John really wants us to see the, the whole nature of the brokenness. He, he put the beginning of this verse 11, but Mary, he's saying a contrast. The disciples had gone home. They, they believed, but they went home. Mary stayed. And so when Mary stayed and the disciples had gone home, Mary now peeks back into the tomb, and there where there was nothing other than some sheets, she sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been. And what is most amazing to me is not the fact that there were two angels in there, but there are two angels in there, and she didn't seem to freak out. I mean, the angels that were sitting there were not the fat little cute things you put on your shelf and on your Christmas cards. They were powerful, frightening warriors, and they're there. And she had already looked in before, and they weren't there before. And I'm amazed that not only is she not freaked out, she doesn't even seem particularly impressed. They ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, there's no condemnation and there shouldn't be any, there's no correction, there's no scolding in that. In other words, they would ask the same as you might if you see somebody in town or a store just sobbing in their brokenness, hey, what's wrong? It's kind of what they're asking and that's what's implied there. So now you've got only none of these angels, but now they're talking to her, and she responds. I'd have been with the other disciples. But what I see in this is that compared to this love that she has for Jesus, even not angelic beings can compare. And the love that she has for Jesus is greater than even the majesty that is glowing in front of her. And she doesn't care how frightening these things may be. She cares that Jesus is gone and she doesn't know where he is and she's afraid she will never see him again. She already knows that he's dead. She's come to grips with that part, but you know, she can't even have a grave to go put flowers on his birthday. She says, I'm crying because someone has taken my Lord and don't know where he is. And she turns around, she sees a man in the shadows that she doesn't recognize for whatever the reasons. And he's asked the same question that the angels asked. Woman, why are you crying? And he does a follow-up question. Who is it you're looking for? Who is it you're seeking? These two questions are profound, even though they are simple. 
And they are a demonstration that Jesus is meeting Mary exactly where she is because they're asking her, what's the reason for your present condition? But they are also so profound that they are taking her deeper because they imply that there is something underneath the surface answer that Mary gives. And these are questions that were not only for Mary, but these are questions that every one of us should ask ourselves, not only in the midst of our difficulty, but even in the times of joy. This is an invitation to know ourselves. Jesus is not asking this question because he doesn't know the answers. He's demonstrating a pattern that God shows throughout the scriptures. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve are now hiding, aware of their nakedness and of their sin. And God says, where are you? He's not finishing up a game of hide and seek and say, I give up. Come on out. Tell me where you are. He's doing what you mothers do with your four-year-olds when you say, what did you do? You know what they did. You want them to know and to think about what they did. Where are you? It's not a matter of God can't find you. It's a matter of look where you are. Think about it. We see it repeated in the Psalms, one of the Psalms that I go to regularly in Psalm 42. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? It's an invitation to be asking yourself, what's the problem? And it echoes with the word, the, 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 the question that the angels and Jesus asked, why are you weeping? What are you cry- Why are you crying? And the reason that she is crying is found in the answer to the second question. Who are you seeking? What is it you really want? Because seeking is not just something that you want. Seeking is somebody that you're, something that you're looking after. And he's saying, what is it you really, really want? What is it you're really, really looking for? And when you get the answer to that question, then you might know why you're feeling such broken. Because likely is when we are depressed or discouraged, that which we are seeking that which we're looking for, whether it's a person or a thing. If it is dead, dying, or threatened, undoes us. And Jesus is meeting her right where she is. There's certainly it's understandable. Why is she crying? Somebody that she knows and loves not only is gone, but he's asking this question, and he asks this question of us as well. Because he meets us where we are, and in the very questions he's asking, he takes us deeper. And I would encourage you to write those questions down and to make it a regular practice to ask yourself these things. It may not be why you're crying, but why are you happy? And what is it you really want? Being aware of that, especially perhaps at times when we recognize what we really want is not God, but stuff from God. Being aware of that enables us to reorient our course and to avoid disaster that happens to us emotionally when we end up crashing because that what we really want is dead and gone. And then Jesus speaks to her. He calls her by name, Mary. And then she recognizes that it is Jesus. And I think in this we see a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus reveals himself to us in his presence. Jesus said earlier that I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice and they follow me because they know me and they know my voice. And there is a sense that we, even today, we won't likely hear the audible voice. I mean, maybe you do, and you can come tell me, and I'll nod and smile, although I won't believe you heard an audible voice. And if I do believe you heard an audible voice, I'll probably take you over to Eastern State, but that's a whole other issue. 
But even though we don't hear the audible voice, or if we hear an audible voice, it'll come through a person that God has brought into our lives. We realize whether they know it or not, God is speaking through that person. We hear God speaking to us, and we recognize his voice speaking to us. Whether it is to bring comfort or correction, we hear it. And in this case, he speaks her name. And the fact that he speaks her name, and that's what awakens her, is an indication that the Good Shepherd doesn't just save a bunch of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we just happen to be part of the bunch. But he knows every one of those who belong to him. He loves he loves intimately. He loves personally. I don't know if there's anything about the fact that he spoke her name that triggered anything I, in my head. It's kind of like what happens at our house sometimes. Apparently, I've been told there are times that I'm not paying quite the attention I should to the instructions that Carolyn is trying to give to me. And then I hear my name, and boom, I am very conscious of what's coming and um, try to piece together before I admit I didn't hear what you had just said before. Um, but... Uh, and so I don't know if it's a situation like that or not, but it is an indication of God knowing those he loves. And then she recognizes him, and then she does what you would expect. She runs, and she begins to squeeze the stuffing out of him. And Jesus says, do not cling to me. Some of your translations, which in King James, I'm not sure, the other ones that say, do not touch me, that's not what he says. It's not entirely wrong, but it gives the wrong connotation, because don't touch me, that's what we used to hear when our kids were in the back seat and were on the long trip. Don't touch me, he touched me. That's what, we, that's what it kind of sounds like. Don't touch me. That's not what he's saying. To understand what he's saying, we need to see the words that he says immediately after He's saying, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. And that's an important message there. And I think what he's saying to Mary is, don't cling to your understanding. Don't cling to the past and think just because I'm here, things are going to be just the way they were. Actually, things are better than you can even imagine. I'm not the same as I was. The glory that I shed, I'm now recovering. But don't cling to me. Don't cling to the way things were because there is more to come. And the more to come relates to the fact that he has to ascend to his father. Now, what happens when Jesus ascends to the father? What does he do there? He continues the work of our salvation by becoming an intercessor or an advocate on our behalf. And so we are now seeing pictures of heaven that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is now our defense attorney for not only the sins of the past, which have already been paid for, uh, but the sins that even after we become believers that we continue to wrestle with or engage in or plunge ourselves headlong into. And I think it was from Tim Keller, but I'm not sure. I know it was a really good illustration, so it probably wasn't from my own mind. Uh, but I heard it years ago that really helped me to understand what that looks like. So when Jesus goes to be the advocate and becomes our defense attorney, it, it does cross my mind as to what exactly is he saying when he goes back time after time after time to say, forgive him, even though he's doing the same thing time after time after time. He hasn't learned yet. So in my mind, it's very easy for me to imagine that Jesus as my defense attorney going and saying, Your Honor, you know my client's an idiot. Just have mercy, pity him. But the scripture says that's not what Jesus is saying, not exactly what Jesus is saying. 
as her advocate, here's what Jesus says. He does do some of it. Your Honor, my client is an idiot. There's no question about that. But the penalty that his idiocy and his sin deserves were placed on my shoulders when I was placed on the cross. They were nailed there and they died with me in death. And they were overcome when I rose. And therefore, if you were to put any penalty on him for the sins, stupid as they are, it would be unjust to put a penalty on somebody whose penalty has already been paid. Case dismissed. And Jesus has ascended to the Father and he's continuing to do the work of our salvation. And so what he, I think, is telling, and, and Bible scholars are not clear on this, but this is where, where I've come down. He's saying, don't cling to what you understand and don't cling to just your ideas of the past, but be open to the whole picture as my glory begins to be made known. And then he says, go to your brothers. Or go tell my brothers that I'm alive and that I'm going to my father who's their father my God who is their God and I think in this we see a third principle so the first again we need to remember and embrace our own brokenness remember that Jesus loves broken people we need to realize that Jesus meets us where we are and he takes us deeper and in that depth we find the intimacy and the direction the hope And then he gives us an opportunity to respond to his commissioning, to send out us out as his missionaries, to bring comfort and encouragement to other people. And he tells Mary, don't cling to me and your understanding, but go tell others. And she's not doing evangelism in the way that we normally think of evangelism because she's going to tell people who already knew. They loved Jesus already. At least two of them had seen the empty grave and were told and now believed and were beginning to understand what Jesus had taught them. But to share the encounter that she had had and the words that he gave her would certainly bring comfort and encouragement to those who still have questions which is all of us, at one time or another. And one of the things that stands out to me as I read this, and I don't know that I'd ever recognize it, or it didn't strike me until, I think it was Friday this week, is that Jesus says, go tell my brothers. He didn't say, go tell my so-called disciples who all ran away from me when things got bad. That's what I would say. My brothers. They had all failed him. They had all fled from him with the exception of John. And he still loves them and considers them brothers. It reminded me, Hebrews 2.11 tells us, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And like Mary, you and I have the opportunity to say, we've experienced the risen Jesus. And he's not ashamed of you. He loves broken people. He'll meet you where you are. 
he'll move you along until you experience the fullness of his grace and reflect his glory. I want to wrap up and finish with a story of a man who lived out all of this about 150 years ago. It's a man named Horatio Spafford. Some of you know the story already. Horatio Spafford was a devout Christian and a prominent lawyer in post-Civil War Chicago. He had a wife named Anna and four beautiful daughters and 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 a young son. In addition to his law practice, he had invested wisely in this booming Chicago. He not only had invested in in real estate, but he owned several buildings in the growing downtown area. And life was good. But at the pinnacle of his career, his fortunes turned. The first blow was the death of their young son. And while they were still grieving that loss, Great Chicago Fire of 1871 came and burned down all of downtown and most of his investments and most of his wealth. They thought about starting over someplace else, but they saw that that fire had not only wiped them out, but it had impoverished many, many people. And as a godly man, he felt compelled. So he stayed in Chicago, not only to rebuild his own life, but help other people get on their feet. And he poured himself into that kind of life. After two years of doing this, uh, they decided to accept an invitation that some friends had given, extended to them to go on a, a much-needed trip. It's going to be a combination vacation and what they called a, 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 a gospel campaign, which we would call a short-term mission. So Spafford made arrangements and we're going to travel from Chicago to New York. He had booked a steamer, a steamship, a passage on a steamship that would take them from New York to England. A few days before they were to set sail, something happened, business crisis in Chicago, and Spafford wasn't able to go with them at that point. Rather than cancel the trip, he encouraged his wife to take the girls, and he would settle the business, and then he would follow them, hopefully, within a few days. And so they did. After setting sail from New York, Anna and the four girls on the ship, an English freighter rammed into the side of their steamship, sending the several hundred passengers into the dark, cold North Sea, North Sea in North Atlantic. Anna frantically was reaching around to grab her daughters and was able apparently to grab a hold of the nightgown of one but eventually all four would slip away, sinking into the depths of the Atlantic. The next day, Anna was found unconscious, but laying atop of some of the debris from the sunken ship. She was taken to England, where she was treated. She sent a two-word telegram to her husband, who opened it up, horrifyingly reads, saved alone. He dropped the business, made his way to New York, booked passage on another ship to take him to England. And the captain of the ship must have known the situation and the story because apparently at some point the captain summoned 
Spafford to come up to the bridge or wherever it is captains sit on a boat. Clearly I was not in the Navy. Um, and he pointed to some maps and then told him we are, we are now sailing the waters that took your daughters. He went up on the deck, began wandering with understandable but probably inexplicable, you know, uh, sorrow. He said it was in the midst of that sorrow that he felt the presence of Christ very personally in a way that he had not before. Again, a godly man, even calling him, comforting him. The pain was still there, but there was something else that was going on and brought to mind the passage from Isaiah 66 that he had remembered studying at some time in the past. And with that passage in mind, he looked out over the, the dark waters that had swallowed his daughters and he wrote down these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Here's a man who has experienced the foundations of his life shattered. Death in a very literal sense, death in a thousand different ways, metaphorically. And after experiencing the presence of the risen Jesus, he writes a poem that has been bringing comfort to others for nearly 150 years. Paul Miller's a friend to several of us in this church. And the thing he's worked on most recently, a book coming out in a few weeks, he, he talks and explains something what he calls the J-curve. And what he means by the J-curve is this, is that our lives are lived with a thousand deaths. Just death, 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 death. But for those who are in Christ, our faith is a resurrection faith. And so that every death for those who are in Christ also leads to a new resurrection and a new life where God brings beauty even despite the ashes of this world. And Spafford was experiencing that. There was nothing that was going to replace what he had lost. There was no way that I can understand the anguish that he was going through. And yet even though he was willing to die, he also was able to declare the comfort that he had because he has had an encounter with a risen God, a resurrected Jesus. Not some teacher. And it makes me ask myself this question. And I want you to ask this too. What would I do if the foundations of my life are shaking? What will I do when I find myself dying? What am I doing right now, even as I experience different little deaths in my life? Do I know him in the resurrection? Do I know his resurrection power? Do I recognize that even though I'm dying, I'll live? And in being with him in that resurrection through my death, 
He still commissions me to go out and to bring comfort to those who are around me by declaring the same as Mary did to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. He who was dead is now alive. Jesus Christ is risen. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom to remind ourselves of the truth that we see embedded in this text. That the power of the resurrection would seize our lives, our consciousness, bringing us comfort, hope, and assurance, and shaping us to be like Christ Jesus. Be at work until all of us have reached full maturity in him. His glory is reflected in our lives and in our relationships in this church. We pray in him. Amen. Please stand as we sing our song of dismissal. I say
of God the Father, the love of Christ the Son, and fellowship in the Holy Spirit be yours now and always. <laughs> 